Hello, everyone. Welcome to this live recording of The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my very special guest, Michael Schellenberger. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you back on. I think this might be your fourth time on the show. We we love talking to you. There is always so much to talk about. Before we start this conversation, I want to warn everyone that I am poorly, hence why my voice might croak and crack during this discussion. But please bear with me. The, the content will be good, even if the voice gives way every now and then. Um, Mike, I've got a million questions for you. I'm sure the audience has questions for you as well. So I think we should just jump straight into the conversation. And the first issue I want to talk to you about is an issue that's been close to Spike's heart since the very beginning of our publishing 21 years ago. I know it's an issue close to your heart as well, which is freedom of speech. And you've been doing some sterling work on this over the past few months and the past few years, looking at the new forms of censorship that are emerging the way in which corporate entities are merging with government entities to try and censor public discussion on everything from climate change to COVID-19. So I want to kick off with this issue in particular and dig down into what form censorship takes today. So I want to start off by asking you about the um, censorship industrial complex. That's something that you've written about extensively. You've spoken about it at the, the Judiciary Committee at the House of Representatives at a huge event in London recently. So to start, could you explain to us what you mean by the censorship industrial complex and why you think this phenomenon is really worth focusing on? The censorship industrial complex was something that we sort of stumbled onto. We were working, we got access to the Twitter files. As many people know, we were looking, we were discovering a lot of what you might call biased censorship in favor of prog the progressive side of things, um, whether on gender or COVID was a big one. And then we discovered that there were these requests coming in from intelligence and security organizations like the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, and then even uh, other government agencies, which we learned was code for the CIA. And that changed things. It was like the floor fell out from it. We realized it wasn't just sort of cancel culture among executives at Twitter, but that there was actually an organized effort to censor disfavored voices that involved U.S. government employees and came, eventually we would learn from the highest levels, including from the White House. That uh, that then led us to, we testified in front of Congress and we discovered that really there had been a lot of U.S. government, but also British government funding for groups that were demanding censorship, often in the name of reducing uh, misinformation around COVID or around hate speech, and we call it a censorship industrial complex. It's a direct reference to what President Eisenhower famously called the military industrial complex, because that was basically military contractors and private sector organizations gaining too much power over policy. In other words, the risk being that defense contractors would send your country to war when you should not go to war in order to make money. In the case of the censorship industrial complex, we do see similar perverse incentives where this is people's careers, it's their jobs, there's a lot of money involved, the US government is directly funding it. And in exchange, then you have government employees demanding more censorship, particularly from Facebook and Twitter, though really from all social media organizations. But in some ways, we're, we're, we're still characterizing the censorship industrial complex, we're still trying to understand it. We have a piece out today about 
a British group called the Center for Countering Digital Hate, which sounds innocent enough, but in fact, it's behind a huge, adver- hugely successful advertiser boycott against Twitter and it has reduced Twitter's advertising revenue by 60 to 70 percent, demanding more censorship by Twitter of disfavored voices, in this case, particularly focused on so-called hate speech. And as we point out, <clears throat> as you might not be surprised, um, the people demanding censorship are constantly expanding the definition of what they count as hate or what they count in particular, in this case, anti-Semitism, counting any criticism of George Soros uh, as anti-Semitic, as one think tank, another th- another British think tank, the Institute for Strategic Dialogue does. So I'll stop there, Brendan, because I know we want to talk about a lot more, but there's a lot more to say about how complex and large and frankly, nefarious, the censorship industrial complexes. Yeah, I want to come back to the issue of hate speech, because I think that is central to a lot of this. And also the issue of misinformation and the way in which so much censorship now is justified uh, uh, in the terms of tackling those two supposed problems. But just sticking with the censorship industrial complex for a moment more, I think what you said there about cancel culture is really interesting, because we, we, as in, I guess, people on our side of politics, the right side of politics, as I would see it, we've had a tendency to look at Twitter pre-Elon Musk and Facebook and these other entities. And we say, look, the problem there is cancel culture. It's a bunch of blue-haired 24-year-olds just out of some woke university, and they're wielding their power to silence gender-critical women and so on. And undoubtedly, all of that is happening. But I think what you've pointed out is is that it's much more deeply ingrained than that, and in some ways, much more institutionalized than that. And you now have a situation, as as you exposed in in the Twitter files that you were involved in, you were involved in Elon Musk's um, very positive dumping of information into the public sphere about censorship at Twitter before he took over. What that revealed is that there is often a close connection between government agencies and these private companies, these social media companies, in terms of clamping down on what is seen as undesirable speech or problematic ideas. One example that you and others have brought to light is the Hunter Biden laptop story. And I I wanted to ask you about just how close the connections were there between an entity like the FBI, for example, and a private company like Twitter, in the sense of coming that those two groups coming together to control the flow of information in the public sphere. How, how sinister do you think the Hunter Biden laptop story was in relation to the censorship industrial complex? So the Hunter Biden laptop was is was actually two laptops, um, two hard drives that uh, got wet somehow. Uh, One might speculate that Hunter Biden dropped them in his bathtub or his swimming pool. They were dropped off at a computer repair store in Delaware in the fall of 2019. And in December of 2019, the computer repair store owner made a backup copy of it at which he had a right to do because it had been abandoned. Uh, Hunter Biden never came back for it. And he gave a copy to the FBI and it did reveal a significant amount of influence peddling by Hunter Biden of his father and his family name. But the FBI sat on that laptop from December 2019 uh, for, I mean, for basically all most of 2020, the computer repair store owner eventually gave a copy to uh, Rudy Giuliani, who was an ally of Donald Trump at the time. And then Giuliani famously took it to the New York Post, 
where the New York Post published it and then Twitter censored it. And what's important about the incident is really not just that Twitter and Facebook both censored the story, but also that they sort of they spread disinformation about it, working with, frankly, the U.S. government to do so intentionally or unintentionally. And what I mean by that is that the what we saw is that, you know, 51 former CIA directors and former intelligence officials came out and said that the laptop had all the markings of a Russian information operation, saying that it was somehow Russian propaganda. That led many people, including myself, I should point out, to sort of dismiss the story as something fishy about it, as opposed to it basically being exactly what it appeared to be. And moreover, we we know that the FBI had the laptop at the time, and therefore they knew it was real. (laughs) And so what you saw, and then what we discovered at Twitter was that the former FBI general counsel was at Twitter and have, was making was making the strongest argument for censoring it within Twitter, and so you see a very and now and since we published that by the way, which was we we published that in well I guess it was January, but since then it's now come out that in fact the FBI agent who had been warning of a potential Russian hacking leak operation of a, which basically was what they claimed that the Hunter Biden laptop was that those people had known that the FBI had the laptop and that it was real. So there's much more to it, but basically, yeah, it looks like basically what it is, a kind of a, a, a conspiracy by a number of officials to spread disinformation um, in, and interfere in, in the 2020 election. And in a way that may very well have been quite significant, given how much we now know about how much money, over $20 million, the Biden family made from selling the uh, access and influence with Joe Biden. It's an extraordinary story. And it's the kind of story that the left would have been all over a few decades ago. You know, the FBI working with private corporations to meddle in public discussion in the run up to a, a presidential election. It has all the ingredients of an extraordinary tyrannical scandal. And yet the left kind of either turned a blind eye or they were engaged in suppressing the story of Hunter Biden's laptop because they didn't want to damage Joe Biden's prospects. A really extraordinary story. And I thought the Twitter files exposés on what was happening behind the scenes was so important to our understanding of how censorship works today. Um, Would you describe this as a form of outsourcing censorship? Because we see the outsourcing of censorship here in the UK um, we know that Matt Hancock, when he was the health secretary during the COVID pandemic in the Conservative government, we know that he was on the phone to Nick Clegg, um, a former leading politician here in Britain who now works very high up at Facebook. Um, so we know there was an outsourcing of censorship here in Britain, it, which is a country in which the government, sadly, is allowed to censor people. You know, we don't have a First Amendment like you guys do. But in the United States, do you think that was even more the case where you have a First Amendment, a hard fought for, uh, constitutionally ingrained First Amendment that guarantees that the government shall not interfere in freedom of speech? So was this a get around in a way? It was it it was a way for the uh, the, uh, Washington to get around the First Amendment, to get around the fact that America is devoted to the principle of freedom of speech by outsourcing the censorious dynamic to private companies. Do you think that was what was going on here? A hundred percent it was. And and the reason we can say a hundred percent is because the people doing it said so. In other words, one of the most important leaders of the censorship industrial complex 
is a former CIA fellow named Rene Daresta, who is at something called the Stanford Internet Observatory, um, which is part of an operation uh, controlled by uh, Obama's former ambassador to Russia, Mike, uh, Michael McFaul, I think. But she explicitly says in a video she recorded for the Department of Homeland Security, she says, I want to talk about the power of partnerships. And she goes on, and we did a whole video about it. Uh, but she says, we need to go create these partnerships to get around the First Amendment. And the idea was basically that you would have think tanks that would get uh, information about what the social media companies were doing, uh, mandated by Congress. This, this had not happened. This has not happened. It's, it hasn't gone anywhere. But the plan was to basically control the data analysis of what was going on on the social media platforms through the National Science Foundation. And then to have Stanford basically and other there's basically three other major censorship organizations then they would decide what should be censored and they would go to the social media platforms and the u.s government would sort of stand there being like you know you better do that and but not necessarily having to to say it that was where they wanted to get to what we know happened in 2021 um, because of the facebook files is the white house was saying you better do it uh they're being very coercive and we know that Facebook actually even went further, you know, they they went further than the censorship they wanted to do themselves because they were worried about the European advertising market, which is a $1.2 billion data business. They were worried about so-called data flows. But where it was headed until the Twitter files and until this Facebook files, which has also now led to an important lawsuit that our Supreme Court could rule on, it was headed to basically having the political uh the politicians and the elected officials and the government officials sort of being there and putting pressure on the social media companies while these private sector actors, often think tanks associated with universities, would be making the specific demands for specific social media posts to be taken down, censored in some other way, or have their users completely deplatformed. It's it's an extraordinary state of affairs, and it's a depressing one too. I rem I'm old enough to remember... I don't know, 25 years ago when the internet first came into existence, there was this utopian vision that it would be, you know, a whole new era. It would make the invention of the printing press look like small fry in comparison, where you would have this completely open platform in which people could publish as and when they wanted to, without needing the old guardians of of the kind of editors of the, of the mainstream press or the or the state or the government keeping an eye on them, but in fact the internet has become strangled by censorship, uh, which is enacted both by completely unaccountable corporate bosses in Silicon Valley, often at the behest of government officials who are not supposed to censor things, but but they do. So it's a, it's a rather um, depressing state of affairs, and I wanted to ask you about. The justification that censorship uh, flies under these days, and there there seems to me to be two in particular. The first is misinformation, tackling misinformation, and the second is countering hate, which you've already mentioned there. So on, on misinformation first, I want to ask you how you understand a term like misinformation. Obviously, misinformation is a real thing. You've already touched upon the fact that Ironically, the misinformation that was coming out over the past few years about Hunter Biden's laptop was from those people who pose as the uh, uh, as the opponents of misinformation. Um, 
But I, I now find myself incredibly skeptical whenever I hear the word misinformation. You hear it in relation to people who criticize mask mandates, for example, or you hear it in relation to people who wonder if perhaps COVID-19 leaked from the laboratory. Maybe it did, maybe it didn't. But all of those things have at some points been described as misinformation and therefore open to being censored, open to being blacklisted as problematic things that should, should not be said in the public sphere. Do you now just feel skeptical when you hear the word misinformation? It, it seems to me to be, whenever I hear it, I think, well, someone is about to be censored for expressing a perfectly legitimate point of view. Yeah, and that's the right response, 100%. So, um, I mean, most of the time, I mean, almost all of the time that people use the words misinformation or disinformation or uh, real world harm are all uh, preludes and pretexts and predicates to demanding censorship, like almost every time. And, and the word misinformation, uh, literally the meaning of it is just being wrong. And the meaning of the word disinformation is lying. Yeah. That's all they mean. Like there's, there's no extra meaning to them. That's all misinformation means. So misinformation is entirely subjective. It's literally an opinion. It's a difference of opinion. Um, but the word tricks the brain in a particular way that's very interesting. And I haven't totally figured out what it's doing. I mean... Both misinformation and disinformation are tricking the brain. They're playing on kind of cognitive errors so that you're turning something subjective, having a disagreement into something objective. I think that the old uh, Marxist uh, thinkers um, would call it reification, um, which is I think probably comes from philosophers, but basically trying to turn a kind of intersubjective dispute. We don't see the world the same way into something that's more like an object that you could actually hold in your hand or you could look at or you could evaluate. So it's sort of, it's also, we could say, scientizing um, the words. So I think both with misinformation and with hate, you're dealing with something that's entirely subjective. Um, support for that, by the way, comes directly from Facebook, which in a court, in a lawsuit, it, it defended itself against a former ABC journalist named John Stossel who sued them in part for a false fact check they did on me, They, uh, they Facebook came back and said, our fact checks are just opinion. They're not actually facts. Yeah. So you see with fact checks, misinformation and hate are all totally subjective, totally in the eye of the beholder, absolutely constitutionally protected, even in Britain, not just in the United States. And yet the these guys were very cleverly, it's, it is itself a disinformation campaign, I think, are using these words to trick our brains into thinking that this is some sort of dangerous object. And in fact, what you see them doing a lot is they'll say it's a kind of contagion or toxin or virus. They sometimes say they use the word infodemic, which is kind of cringe and cheesy, but is actually all aimed at making you think that other people, the sounds that are coming out of other people's mouths and the words they write down are somehow a direct danger and are a threat to society, to democracy, uh, to elections, um, to health. And so, yeah, I think you're right to put your finger on it. I will say that now also having written on the ways in which, for example, Anthony Fauci deliberately misled the public, I do sometimes find the word disinformation to be an accurate way to describe what Anthony Fauci was doing. It wasn't just I could just say he was lying, 
But there is some power to point out that he was deliberately trying to deceive people, including by getting articles published in peer-reviewed journals that said something very different from what he himself knew that we now know because of the released emails. So I will say, well, on the one hand, I do think it's mostly been used in that way. I do also, I'm not sure I would never want to use the word disinformation, nor am I sure I'd want to get away from the idea that one had, that there are facts in the world and that you can check them. As a journalist, I do want to be evidence-based. So I think we need to, I think we need to have fact-checking for free speech. And when we call attention to, to, miss or disinformation in those ways that we emphasize that we're not calling for anybody to be censored. I think that's that's such an important point. Fact checking is a very, it's a crucial journalistic exercise. We should always yeah. check our facts, of course. But at the same time, uh, as with the word misinformation in particular, I just find myself feeling incredibly skeptical whenever I hear the term fact checking now, because so much fact checking is actually incredibly political. It's about issuing a judgment on certain forms of opinion or certain forms of dissent. You know, in the old days, people used to say, who watches the watchers? You know, who 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 guards the guardians, who's who who keeps an eye on the censors is basically what people were saying. And now I think we need to ask who fact checks the fact checkers because they are often uh, very political and there's there's now a fact checking entity at the BBC here in the UK and it's just completely disastrous from day 1 it's been highly political it 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 says it fact checks conspiracy theories but it now seems to promote its own conspiracy theories about how there are these networks of um crazy far-right dissenting voices who are coming together to overthrow modern society. So the fact-checkers end up sounding far more conspiratorial than the people they're supposedly fact-checking. And it's worth keeping an eye on all of that, I think. Obviously, the other justification for censorship now, one of the most powerful ones, I think, is countering hate, countering hate speech. And you've already mentioned that. And You've already mentioned that more and more ideas, what I would consider in some instances to be perfectly legitimate ideas, are being collapsed under the banner of hate speech. So, for example, uh, gender critical feminists who say that men are not women, that is now interpreted by some people as a form of bigotry. That's a form of hate speech. It's it's transphobia. You've mentioned there that any criticism of George Soros at all is now very cynically depicted as anti-Semitic even though he is a very influential player in certain political spheres. And therefore, in my view, that makes him someone like everyone else uh, who should be open to um, criticism and discussion and analysis. And we have in Ireland at the moment, and you've talked about this and, and other people have as well, a new hate speech bill going through, which would be completely disastrous for freedom of speech and which makes hatred an entirely subjective category. Virtually anything can be defined as hatred if any person considers it to have been a hateful expression or a hateful idea. Um, how problematic do you think the term hate speech is? Do we just need to get rid of the term hate speech and, and go back to the old fashioned terms like racism or anti-Semitism, where those terms are appropriate to use? Is it just now an entirely a justification for censorship? So we did this piece today that was really interesting for us. It's um, so let's get back to this. Um, this there's again, there is a 60 to 70 percent decline in advertising for Twitter since Elon Musk took over an advertising boycott led by this group, the Center for Countering Digital Hate, which is led by Imran Ahmed, I think, if I say his name correctly, or Ahmed. 
Um, but he claims to have started this organization because there was a person who killed a former female MP named Joe Cox. Uh, the man's name was Thomas Mayer, who did it. And according to um, CCDH's story, according to Imran's story, he started his organization to counter online hate because online hate led Thomas Mayer to kill Joe Cox. That's his story. Well, it doesn't take very long to figure out. Um, I, I mean, I hypothesized that it took uh, 10 seconds on Google to figure out that the man, this, this person that committed this horrible murder was mentally ill and was on psychiatric medications almost his entire life. I found the exact, I found a very eerily similar case about a year ago when somebody attacked the husband of Nancy Pelosi, who as, as I think most people in Britain know too, is the former head of our House of Representatives. Terrible attack. And right away you had these people in the media who have very, anyway, I won't, I don't want to speculate, but who in a very immediately claimed that it was because that they had been radicalized by far right online hate. Once again, it was a guy that had been homeless, psychotic, mentally ill and addicted to hard drugs for decades. So you sort of get this really, I and mean, when you really think about it for a minute, it's offensive. First of all, it's offensive to be calling things political crimes that appear to be results of mental illness. It's really a dirty low down thing to do with people that you disagree with to claim that they're actually motivated by racism or by anti-immigrant sentiment or whatever it might be it's just a terrible terrible thing to say now again this goes to the question of and yes i do think it's almost always a predicate to censorship now does that mean that we should get rid of the words hate crimes I don't know. I mean, what I will what we point out in the article is that many things are are ascribed to being hate crimes that are simply not. I mean, we have a lot of cases of people attacking Hasidic Jews and Asians in the United States right now. And many of those things do not appear to be driven by any particular animus towards the Asians necessarily. Um, and in the case of Jews, as my colleague uh, Alex Gutentag points out, it's often a kind of class anger and based on some misunderstandings that people have. And it's not clear that it's best to, to think of this as a kind of fascism or Nazism like we saw with other forms of anti-Semitism. So I do think, and then the final part, of course, that people you're probably aware of is that people today define things as, as hate incidents much more readily than they did a few years ago or a few decades ago. So much of the so-called increase of hate incidents is an effect of, of people simply expanding their own definition of the category which psychologists called concept creep. So I'm not sure if we should totally get rid of the concept. Maybe. I mean, part of me goes, I don't know why we're deciding. We're, we're, why do why do we think the motive of somebody who commits a crime um, necessarily should affect the the sentence? I mean, there is something about premeditation that we have in the law already. But I mean, I think deciding that somebody was hateful um, as a motivation and that should somehow increase the punishment and create a separate category. I think it's created more problems than it's solved. I'll put it that way. It paves the way to thought crime in some ways, because as you say, premeditation is a is an important idea in the law. And it's something that needs to be taken into account when punishing someone who's found guilty of a crime. But when you get into the supposedly hateful thought that was in that person's mind when they committed their offense, 
then you are and if you extend their sentence on that basis then they are partially in jail for what they think they're partially in jail for what they believe and and that's where it becomes really problematic i think in relation to um hate speech to my mind it now just it, whenever i hear the term hate speech i just think of the term thought crime because I don't think any form of hateful speech should be censored, even speech that is genuinely hateful, racist speech, Holocaust denial, and so on, because those are ideas best countered in the public realm rather than being crushed by the state. So I think it, we got to be, you know, very careful in relation to the hateful discussion, which you've uh, written about really well over the past few months. You mentioned there Joe Cox, um, the Labour MP who was pretty savagely murdered in 2016 in, during the Brexit referendum. And I think the exploitation of her despicable murder to political ends, particularly to the end of censoring people, has really been awful. And it's something that a lot of people in the UK feel uncomfortable with. You know, it's not very well known outside of this country that two MPs have been murdered over the past few years, Joe Cox in 2016 and David Amos. Uh, a Tory MP was murdered in 2021. His case is not talked about as much because his killer was uh, a sympathizer with the Islamic State. He wasn't a radical Islamist. And that kind of just gets memory hold. People don't recall it as readily as they do the killing of Joe Cox because the killing of Joe Cox was utilized in a way by the, by the establishment, whereas the killing of David Amos was seen as a bit of an embarrassment and best forgotten. So the cynical machinations behind a lot of this stuff is something I think it's really worth considering and, and calling out. Can I say something about that? Yes, please do. So, I mean, the first point is super important you made, which is that you classify something as a hate crime, and then the next thing you know, you're going to be uh, criminalizing uh, thought crimes and even pre-crime, so as you know, because you're very close to Ireland, and as I know, because I think Ireland is a really um, important country because it's preparing to crack down on precisely what we're talking about, which is pre-crime. They want this, this law that's moving forward in Ireland uh, would allow the police to go into people's homes, confiscate their computers, confiscate their phones, and basically deem them guilty of disseminating so-called hateful materials just by having those materials, yeah. um, it's criminalizing uh, what you are predicting to be future behavior. I mean, it is science fiction minority report. This is dystopian, disturbing, totalitarian. But I think it comes right out of what you were saying. It's, it's just predicted right from that trajectory. If you start to put special penalties on, on so-called hate crime, next thing you know, you're going to go after uh, you know what people are thinking and what's on their computers and whatnot. I want to make another point, too, about... This is in today's piece by my colleague, Alex Guntag, which I encourage people to read because it's an outstanding uh, evaluation of the speech issues. It's, it's, there's an, always an instrumental reason for free speech. You need it for democracy. You need it for free markets. You need it to overcome bad ideas. You need to have that free exchange to come over the bad ideas. I believe in all those instrumental reasons. There is also still always a fundamental human right, I believe, and I think you believe too, to freedom of speech, that we think it's fundamental to being alive, that actually we will fight to the death to protect this right, because we would rather not, we do not want to live in closed societies where we're not able to have this freedom. People have died for hundreds of years. Uh, there were wars fought uh, to protect this, this fundamental freedom, and that we support this fundamental freedom. Yes, 
even for Nazis, even for racists, we believe that they have a fundamental human right to speak and to and to say what they want to say. And just as we have a right to counteract them, but it's not free speech is not something that the government gives us provisionally. It's something that we believe that all humans have from birth. As Jefferson famously said, it's inalienable, it's intrinsic. And I think that's one thing that I I think I had that intuitively, but I feel like I, with the process of the Twitter files and censorship industrial complex and having interactions with people like you, I've come to really believe in it and get really clear that it is a right I would absolutely fight and die for because I don't think uh, that life is worth living if you don't have that fundamental freedom. Very well said. I couldn't agree more. Um, just for the benefit of listeners, when when Mike is referring to things that he's been publishing by himself and other people, of course, he's talking about his Substack, which is called Public, which everyone should subscribe to. It's excellent and it's full of uh, brilliant material on lots of different issues. Um, okay, Mike, I could talk to you about freedom of speech for another few hours, but we're going to move on to a, a couple of other issues before we take some questions from the audience. Um, we talked already about misinformation and in fact, disinformation, which as you said, is a form of lying. So I now want to come on to another issue close to your heart and mine, which is climate change hysteria. The reason I always like talking to you about this is because your book on this stuff, which was called Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All, uh, was really impactful on my thinking. I know it was influential to lots of other people too. So I want to talk to you about the state of the climate change discussion, and in particular, let's start off with the wildfires in Europe, which have been held up as firm proof that Mother Earth is punishing us. She's burning us to death. All of these wildfires are being given uh, hellish names, devilish names to, to indicate that they are really a form of natural punishment for the sins of mankind. But as you've pointed out recently, and, and a few others have as well, it's a bit more complex than that. We now know that lots of people in Greece, for example, have been arrested for arson because they started these fires. Um, we know that there is uh, proof out there that actually the amount of land being lost to fire is not as great today as it was 20 or 30 years ago. So is this another example, do you think, of, of the disinformation of the climate change lobby? I do. In fact, in this case, I think the word disinformation is accurate and I don't want to censor it. I want to argue with it and point out that it's wrong, but it is deliberate in the sense that there was there has been a concerted effort since the 1990s, we know, to convince people that climate change is making natural disasters worse. Yes, there is some evidence that climate change is causing more heat waves and changes to precipitation. But a disaster is defined as two things and two things only, and that's deaths. It's counted as deaths and costs. And we are not seeing an increasing cost of extreme weather events. And deaths from extreme weather events, of course, have been going down radically. They've gone down over 95%, 99% in many countries. Basically, nobody dies of natural disasters in the United States, usually a few hundred. So yes, it's basically been, um, I think, a disinformation campaign. To understand fires, the most important thing to understand is that there don't have to be out-of-control fires. We're not doomed to out-of-control fires. We point out that a, a famous climate scientist, maybe the most influential climate scientist in the world right now, a gentleman by the name of Michael Mann, claimed that the only way to prevent these catastrophic fires is by reducing carbon emissions and, and, and stopping global warming. 
That's just false. We're absolutely able to prevent these catastrophic fires from spreading. If you just look at the three most recent cases, California, Greece, and Hawaii, in every case, it was bad fire prevention and bad forest management, or in the case of Hawaii, bad grasslands management. So in both California and Hawaii, they had failed to clear the area around the electrical wires, which um, are often the trigger for these catastrophic fires. In Hawaii, they had failed to stabilize the electrical poles, which we think probably collapsed and contributed to the fires. Uh, they did not have proper uh, disaster preparedness in Hawaii for people to escape and to have the sirens working in the right way and for people to be trained and prepared to run into the water in case a fire came from the hillsides. In Greece, uh, we I, I just, you know, I spent just a tiny amount of time. You can find it right away. I point this out how easy it is to debunk this stuff because. Um, it means the news media are, it's not just they're being exceedingly lazy, it's that they're being spoon-fed a story that's false and easily falsifiable. The two big studies on Greek fires uh, show exactly what I'm saying, that uh, they had been, that, that the scientists themselves, they say, you should not say climate change is a cause. You know, it's, it's is it a necessary factor? Is warmer weather a necessary factor? Not really. Uh, we've had fires before. If you had to not change the temperature, you could have had these catastrophic fires. Um, likewise, you could have a higher temperature and not have the fires. So when you're looking at this issue, it's fundamentally a question of land use management, of disaster preparedness. And so you see a lot of interest gets served by blaming climate change. The politicians get to blame somebody else for their own failures. Yeah. They also get to get, raise money for renewables and demand more subsidies for renewables, claiming that it's because of climate change. Um, and then it serves all the other needs that people, spiritual needs that people have to feel like we're in the middle of an, a secular apocalypse, as you write so eloquently about it in your amazing book, um, that we're in the middle of an apocalypse and that I'm going to play some sort of a superhero role to sound the alarm and harmonize humankind with nature so we can avoid this literally fiery um, hellscape apocalypse, which uh, I think is just very powerful at a visceral level for people to see. I mean, the images you know, of hell and of fires are basically the same. And so you can see that it, it's it's got all these interests being served, political, financial, and spiritual at the same time. Sometimes I think that, you know, the supposed leftists who are environmentally inclined or who have bought into the climate change hysteria, I think they don't appreciate how much they are letting governments off the hook and letting the state off the hook because yes. we know that it is well within our capacity to control wildfires we know that there is such a thing as flood defenses you know these things that nature sometimes throws at us we can manage we know how to do these things and as you say there were government failures that exacerbated the impact of the recent wildfires. We know that in Germany, a few years ago, uh, the floods there were made worse by uh, a state failure in relation to, to flood defenses. But when you pinpoint, when you put the blame for everything on climate change, on, on human hubris, and, and the need to, to wind down carbon emissions, you end up letting governments off the hook for the practical measures they could be taking to further protect humankind from the violent whims of, of the natural world. Um, you mentioned that the spiritual element of uh, the climate change lobby and climate change hysteria, and I did want to ask you about that because it's something you've spoken about very eloquently before, and we've talked about it as well, you and I, 
in relation to groups like Extinction Rebellion or or the cult of Greta Thunberg, who is who's like the secular messiah for a lot of the climate change lobby. Uh, you know, these groups that are increasingly um pseudo-biblical in the way in which they understand the coming of end times and uh, the judgment of mankind for his sins. There is a kind of almost uh, religious feel to some of this, but without the transcendental qualities of religion or the connecting qualities of religion, it's just the harshness and nothing else. Um, What do you think explains that spiritual desire for, for a feeling that one is in in battle against an apocalypse. What is underlining that? What drives that desire, do you think? Well, I think part of it is a healthy desire to feel transcendent and to feel like your life matters. Um, the There's a great psychologist who calls this an immortality project. We all want to feel like our lives matter. We all want to feel like our lives make a difference, um, whether at the very personal level or at some larger level. Um, I think it becomes unhealthy uh, at a certain point or when it becomes destructive or self-destructive, as we've seen with these new messianic and apocalyptic religions, particularly on climate change. I do think what drives it is that, you know, the traditional religions have declined. And as as those decline and, and cease providing meaning for people and, and people stop believing in God and the soul and in the afterlife, they still have a real yearning for for meaning and purpose and transcendence. And so they get it marketed to them. I mean, basically by renewable energy companies, by uh, renewable energy companies posing as environmental organizations, and by the government, by politicians who themselves, I think, are really wrapped up in a kind of superhero fantasy of themselves as world savers because they're, you know, importing and unboxing solar panels made in China and that that's there's all sorts of little purification rituals they run. But I do think it speaks to a really deep need. And obviously you and I, or maybe not obviously because nobody knows yet, but you and I have been talking a lot about needing to affirm uh, a different set of positive values, including a celebration of humankind and how special we are and amazing we are and creative and wonderful and constructive and loving and beautiful. And then also to affirm civilization because if you love humans, you must love civilization because it's the only way to protect all people, including the vulnerable, including the poor, uh, including the people left out or discriminated against or stigmatized. And so if you're pro-human, you're pro-civilization. If you're pro-civilization, you must be in favor of all the basics, uh, including cheap and abundant energy, which is the basis for civilization and for for expanding freedom. I think you need to also be pro-freedom. So I think that this I think that we get to that really dark place and we get to the diagnosis that it's nihilism and it's the construction of this alternative religion. I think it makes me even more ur- feel more urgently of the need for us to articulate a positive affirmation of humankind and of human civilization, because otherwise I do think it's just uh, a very dark future. Mike, I want to ask you just to touch on the wokeness hysteria and how you understand it, because I think it's something that you and I are both worried about. Um, There seems to be a new culture of irrationalism on the rise. You know, when you have a situation where people are compelled to repeat the mantra, trans women are women, even though that's not true, or when we're forced to accept that, for example, black people and white people are entirely different and will never really understand each other. White people have to check their privilege. Black people have to wallow in their pain. 
there are these new ideas emerging, which seem to me to directly counter what would have been considered liberal, left, progressive ideas just a few years ago, certainly a few decades ago, when people were more interested in sexual equality, the end of racial politics, not the rehabilitation of racial politics, a, a vision of the future which was about um, equality and freedom rather than the kind of divisiveness and hysteria and irrationalism that um, so-called left-wing wokeness seems to have unleashed, although I don't recognize it as left-wing at all, I must say. Um, what's your read on the the woke crisis at the moment? How serious do you think it is? Do you think people are starting to resist it? They're starting to get tired of it. Where do you think wokeness stands right now? Oh, gosh, great question. <laughs> I do think it's a moment that requires an an alternative vision to be articulated. Um, I think that people are sick of it. Um, I think that we're all tired of it, but it's also the case that it's hegemonic and it's taken over major institutions, including the news media, you know, a big a big chunk of political life, um, a large number of political parties. A large number of medical associations, um, universities. Um, so I do think it's in some ways it is the entrenched elite ideology. It's unstable in the sense that it's so divisive. It's so self-destructive. The alternative, which you're describing, which is pro-human, you know, it's pro-development, it's pro-freedom, it's pro-equality. Um, it's I think it's a simpler, um, you know, uh, foundation for people to understand than the very complicated kind of Byzantine and cult-like acronyms and uh, kind of, uh, you know, just very sectarian, you know, woke sectarianism that we see. It's also very destructive. So I think that, you know, we are in a period where obviously political identity has been changing and that what was the kind of core issues for the left are now core issues for the right, including on this issue of free speech. Um, I think other issues of bodily autonomy. And so I think what gives me hope is that I do think that we are seeing a backlash to it. You know, literally just last night, Facebook um, announced that it was cutting off ties with one of the partisan fact checkers it had in Australia. I think we could get the Supreme Court to rule in favor of the states of Missouri and Louisiana against the Biden administration. I think the European you know, Union um, is on the one hand threatening free speech, and on the other hand is demanding better privacy protections from big tech. That could be very positive for reining in some of those abuses of power that we've seen. So I, um, I can't say for sure, but I do think right now the responsibility is turning back towards us as critics of wokeism and critics of wokeness to really provide the pro-human, pro-civilization alternative, because I do think people are sick of wokeism, but I think they're not quite sure what the alternative is. And I think many people on the left or in the middle fear that it's kind of unbridled Trumpism, and I'm not sure that they're totally on board with that either. As Mike mentioned there, uh, Mike and I and a few other people have been talking about what a pro-human politics might look like, what a pro-human manifesto might look like. That's obviously something that Spike's been thinking about for years and years as well and talking about in public and, and publishing about. Um, and Mike and I hope to produce something in the next couple of months, I guess, uh, articulating a, a more pro-human vision that people might be able to get behind. 
Right, Mike, I'm now going to throw some questions at you from the audience. The first question is from Kerry. Kerry asks, what does Michael think of the pushback against net zero? For example, farmers in Europe rising up against um, uh, carbon emissions cutbacks and so on. Should we be hopeful that something that was previously seen as beyond question, i.e. the ideology of net zero, is now being called into question as an anti-human thing that people should oppose? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you may not be surprised. I'm very inspired by the fa- the farmers and the resistance. I've written, I wrote two stories about the Dutch farmers. I love the Netherlands as, as I love Britain as, as countries. And I really respect and admire so many people there. And I spent some time with the Dutch farmers. I did a very moving interview with a Dutch farmer who's one of the leaders. I think that uh, one thing people don't understand and should understand is the farmers did do a good job of reducing their pollution. They did it in relationship with the government. And so as usual, uh, this isn't about the environment. Uh, there are ways that you can reduce the environmental impact, um, particularly around nitrogen. You know, it's mostly just controlling manure, not to get too gross on the call, but there, it's not a super complicated technical frontier or something. So anyway, I've already probably gone on longer than I wanted to. But yes, I'm with the farmers and I hope that they embrace a more uh, kind of pro-human environmentalism because that's what we need. This is an interesting question. I'd like to know the answer to this myself. This is from Denise. She says, when you did the Twitter files, did you get all the information that you wanted when you visited the facility? Did Elon Musk throw the door open for you? And do you feel confident that if another issue crops up, that um, you will be able to approach Elon Musk saying, look, we need to dig into this as well? So I guess, what were the practicalities around the Twitter files? That was done by you and some other journalists as well, uh, Bari Vise, for example, uh, Matt Taibbi. What was the process that you guys went through? Did you have complete access to those files and and the freedom to to put them out in the way that you wanted to? Yeah, I mean, the latter question, do we have the freedom to put them the way we wanted to? Hundred percent. That's a that's less complicated. Um, the only thing that Elon asked, and which of course we respected, is that we publish it on Twitter first, which we did. Um, on the first part, um, the also the answer is basically yes. Like there was never a moment where they were like, "That's too sensitive," or "You can't have that," or whatever. Um, basically we would get just large document dumps and I don't think that anybody even went through them first in part because of the amount of time it would take to do that. You know, we're talking like hundreds and thousands of emails and messages. Um, and we were putting in requests and getting stuff back that made me very skeptical that anybody had even looked at it. They were just giving us stuff. Um, I think we could go back and get more. I think other Twitter files have been released in recent weeks and months. In fact, I can't now I'm blanking because it wasn't just the three of us. There was actually other people that got brought in, you know, and honestly, it was over time. I think there was some diminishing returns like we would get these big events out and we just had bigger stories. Uh, January 6th, Hunter Biden laptop, COVID. These were the big events. There was other cases, like, for example, one of the big controversies is Turkey had been demanding censorship by Elon Musk, and there had been a long-running court case. As soon as he complied with the Turkish government's demands, people criticized him of being hypocritical. And I just looked through the files, and I found that really Twitter had been dealing with this issue for long before Elon came apart, came on the scene, and they were basically planning to go do the exact same thing that he did, and maybe he went further by making it transparent. So. There are cases where I'll look into those files again. 
Um, and I certainly that I think that door is open and Elon's open to it. I also just think, yeah, we just kind of, I think we got out a lot of the good stuff. The stuff that came a little bit later just wasn't as sort of as shocking maybe and as relevant. Um, but certainly I think it's all still there and there's more, to, there's probably more there to find. The next question is from Rory. Does Michael think that anyone will be held accountable for Russiagate or the suppression of the Hunter Biden story? And then there's a follow-up question. Do Republicans have to get tougher? Now, neither you nor I, Michael, are particularly sympathetic to the Republicans. Uh, Some of them are pretty good. Some of them are pretty bad. But what do you think it will take to hold people to account for the lies of Russiagate? and the disorienting impact that Russiagate and the Hunter Biden suppression had on public discussion? I mean, those are really good, important, big questions. Um, Hard to do in 30 seconds. Um, Let me just say, you know, I'm not a Republican, but I think the Republicans did their job and have done a good job in being investigative as an opposition party in any situation should do. So hats off to them, I think, for really pursuing this and getting to the bottom of it. Same with the attorneys general with the lawsuits that I mentioned. Yeah, I mean, I doubt that, honestly, I really doubt that anybody associated with any of the bad stuff that we saw over the last three years is ever going to be like held accountable or prosecuted. I'd be at this point, I'd be much happier just with some of the kind of reforms that we saw in the 1970s in the United States and around the world. The 70s was a period of, you know, less secrecy, better oversight, shutting down, frankly, evil programs that the government had got itself into getting the psychopaths fired or disempowered in those organizations. Um, I think all of that is absolutely within reach and under a different administration, I think would have majority support support potentially in Congress. But I'm not, I mean, the prediction is not as interesting as just knowing that that is what we need still. That hasn't been done. You do need truth and reconciliation, but then you just need real reform because these agencies, frankly, are corrupted. I mean, this is no, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I just think some of these agencies, including FBI, and DHS are just corrupted by bad leaders and they need to be replaced and they need to fire the people that have been involved in the censorship and the abuses of power. I'll also point out our FBI, just they actually were they were they were kicking out the good boys, the good guys, the Boy Scouts, the ones who would uphold the Constitution and, and talk back to the abuses of power. And that's a very disturbing trend that needs to be reversed. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that worries me about the current moment is not only that bad things are happening, but also that there's often a lack of reckoning with those bad things. And I think more reckoning with the censorship industrial complex, the lockdown mania, the climate change hysteria impact, I think more reckoning with those problems is is definitely something that we need in, in the years going forward. Um, Okay, next question is from Rosie. This is an interesting one because this is another issue that you've written about extensively, Mike, which we haven't really touched on in this pod yet, which is the future of cities. Now, people will be familiar with your book, San Francisco, looking at what's happened to San Francisco and and other cities that are under so-called progressive rule. Uh, Rosie asks, what does Mike think of the impact that progressive, censorious and environmentalist ideologies have had on the life of cities? And is there a city that you could point to that is an anti-San Francisco, Rosie calls it, that is that you would hold up as a more positive uh, symbol of, of how we should move forward? I mean, you know, Amsterdam is the city I know the best, and they had big open-air drug scenes, open-air drug dealing, so-called homelessness like we had. 
and they've dealt with it. I mean, basically, they don't have, you know, these open air drug scenes like we have in San Francisco. I mean, but almost nobody else has it quite as bad as we do. Most country, most cities that function well, like um, neither like Amsterdam. I mean, I know London has has some problems. I've seen some in Germany too, but just nothing at this level. Um, but no, I mean, San Francisco is in a doom loop. So you may have heard that, which is just that the businesses are fleeing, the retail stores are fleeing. I mean, I was in London, as people know, in June, and I just was walking around being like, why can't we have these things? Why can't we have a vibrant retail, you know, little restaurants and stores? I mean, it seems so basic. It's like a city. And it's because we won't deal with this problem of of open air drug dealing and and untreated mental illness and addiction. So I don't think that the I don't think that what cities need is pretty straightforward. It's basically law and order. You need enough police. You need enough proper medical care. It's not that hard. Um, but yeah, I do think that the ideology is what's driving it. And when you get when you get leaders that are really um, pursuing that woke agenda, um, that's when you see the deterioration on the ground. I hope you realize that calling for law and order makes you a fascist these days. So that's something that you're just going to have to. I've heard that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. The final question, which is far too big a question to answer in a brief period of time, but give it a whirl. I'm going to put two questions together. Um, DM Davis says, why are progressives so prepared to sacrifice the poor for their aims? which is a question that could apply to any of the topics we've talked about tonight, the future of cities, the climate change hysteria, and so on. And Claire asks, what does Mike think of Alex Epstein's argument that we should fully embrace fossil fuels as a necessity to maintain our quality of life and to enable poorer countries to industrialize in the way that we have? So I guess that's a couple of questions there about the thing yeah. that used to come naturally to people who are liberals or who are left-wing or who are progressives or whatever world we, we want to use, which is the question of liberating people from poverty. And I think putting that question back in the forefront is quite important too, isn't it? Of course. Yeah. I mean, I, those are people that have read Apocalypse never know that I believe that uh, poor countries have a right to consume any source of energy that lifts them out of poverty, including coal, um, and, uh, most countries make a, you know, most poor countries start out by using coal and building hydroelectric dams. Some, you know, have abundant natural gas that they can use, you know, Angola, Mozambique, uh, a lot of African countries have abundant gas and that's even better than coal. Uh, but right now the EU is trying to prevent those countries from tapping their gas resources in a kind of neocolonialism. Well, of course they want access to the gas, but they don't want Africa to have it. They want Africans to have to use solar panels shipped from China. Uh, made by coal in China. Um, and that's obviously wrong and immoral, and we should fight that. It's it's neo-imperialism and should be denounced in the strongest terms possible. Um, I will say, I think in rich countries, uh, you know, we do clean the air and we reduce our pollutants by moving from coal to natural gas and from uh, coal and natural gas to nuclear. I'm a huge advocate of nuclear. Yes, it's harder than a coal plant or just unboxing solar panels from China, but it provides really cheap baseload and zero pollution energy. And so uh, I think that, um, you know, poor countries, everybody should should try to move up the energy ladder. Uh, but certainly poor countries tend to start with coal and, and hydro and rich countries tend to move towards gas and nuclear. And that's the that's the right direction of travel. Mike, thank you very much. Great to be with you, Brendan.